From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. There's good news and bad news. The good news is federal bills directing more money towards shooting ranges and mandating ranges on federal lands, plus a federal judge dismissing a $10 billion lawsuit against gun manufacturers. The bad news is that federal agencies are in cahoots with anti-hunting activists to ban lead ammunition, and our tax dollars are being used to pay for the lawsuits. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director for BFA. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. It's good to be with you. So, Rob, what have you been up to recently? We talked about a month ago, we were talking about elections. Of course, That's still going on, and we have a few weeks to go until the sweet relief of the day after Election Day. So uh, what have you been up to? Well, aside from, you know, stuff involving the election, I actually was was able to get out on opening day of morning dove hunting season on September 1st, had one of the best opening days that I've ever had bird hunting. It was a great time. Did you leave any for anybody else, or are they all gone now? Well, I did my best to make sure they were all gone, but, uh, but I tell you what, there was a whole lot of them. And, uh, as one of the, you know, one of those times when the birds were flying and you had lots of opportunities and, uh, I definitely left a few, I missed a few, they're hard to hit, but it was a great time. And we limited out mid morning. So good way to kick off the fall hunting season. What, what is the limit for that? 15, you can shoot 15 morning doves per day. And the national average is about four to five shots per morning dove killed. So it's a, it's a challenging target. And, uh, I managed to be a little bit less than the national average, but not much. I, uh, I missed quite a few. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds really great. Uh, as much as I'd like to talk about that, what I really want to talk about on this podcast, some federal bills about shooting ranges. We're going to talk about a, a lead ban that I think a lot of people, at least a lot of the gun guys that support BFA, probably aren't really aware of. And then I want to talk about this lawsuit that Mexico had against U.S. gun manufacturers. So let's start out with these uh, range bills. And I want to talk first about one that passed three years ago, and it passed with really little fanfare. I'm not sure if we even covered it, but it's had a pretty big effect. And this was generally referred to as the range bill. Uh, actually, it was called the Target Practice and Marksmanship Training Support Act, signed into law by President Trump 2019. And this resulted in around $91 million in grants for the construction and improvement of uh, shooting ranges all over the country, something like 168 firearm ranges, 32 archery ranges, 33 combined ranges, And just to put this in perspective, the U.S. has 856 total public ranges for firearms and archery. Now, that sounds like a lot, but, you know, if you 
were to average that out over 50 states in a country that's as large as ours, you know, the United States is the third largest country in the world, that's really not a lot of public ranges. So it's a good thing that we're trying to, uh, you know, direct money toward the construction or improvement of ranges. All of this, Rob, has to do with the Pittman-Robertson excise taxes. I know we've talked about this before, but can you just summarize one more time for us? What is Pittman-Robertson? How does that work? Sure. So Pittman-Robertson, of course, that's the name of the two congressmen whose name was on the original law. Our members of Congress love to have the laws named after them. And uh, Pittman-Robertson is formerly called the Wildlife Restoration Act. It is an excise tax on firearms, ammunition, archery equipment that is at the manufacturer level. And then that money is then divvied back out to the states for various projects. In the past, it's been very heavy on wildlife habitat, you know, hunting habitat, access to, to uh, hunting lands and that sort of thing. Literally billions of dollars spent nationwide to make hunting better. But what's happened recently, what you're talking about, is that they have refocused Pittman-Robertson to have a sharper focus on shooting ranges uh, and actually prioritize that you can spend that money on shooting ranges more than it's ever been before. And of course, they also adjusted the, the, the federal share of such projects, and that's really big news. So it used to be that, say, here in Ohio, the Division of Wildlife, if they were going to build a brand new range, they'd have to pony up 25% of the cost of the construction, and they would have three years to acquire land for that construction. And then Pittman-Robertson would put up the matching 75%. And this bill that passed three years ago drops that to 10%. So you don't have to put up 10% and you'd have five years to acquire the land. So Rob, that's a lot better deal, you know, for the States. It's a heck of a deal. It's a great deal. And so there are two things I want to note about that, Dean. The first is the state has to put up a hundred percent and then they get reimbursement on the federal match. So, you know, it's important. Like when people ask why, why did so many sportsmen support the increase in hunting license fees, for example? Well, you do that so you have money in the fund that you can invest in projects like this. But in the past, you know, the state would put up 100% of the cost, and then the federal government, using these Pittman-Robertson dollars, would reimburse the state for 75%. Now, as you say, it's been increased to 90%, and specifically notes that shooting ranges should be a priority use for that money. And that's big news for gun owners. Yeah, this is not about asking for public money, right? This is this is not a handout. I mean, basically, gun owners are paying their own way. When that's you right. buy a firearm, Rob, if you went today and bought a firearm, a portion of that through the manufacturer would go into the Pittman-Robertson Fund, and then they would come back to you as a benefit when that would support the upgrade or the building of a, of a range near you. So now, Rob, uh, Pittman-Robertson started in 1937. Is that right? That's right. So uh, since then, uh, they've paid out something like $15 billion in funding for you know education programs, wildlife conservation, shooting ranges, and so on. Now, if you adjust that for inflation, you're talking like $23 billion 
which is an awful lot, more than 80% of that, of the Pittman-Roberts and excise tax contributions are generated by sales attributed to recreational shooting today. So, for example, over the past two or three years, we've seen a lot of new shooters coming about. Most of that is people buying guns for recreational or for self-defense. And so their dollars, a portion of their dollars, are going right into this fund. So it makes perfect sense that the money is going to shooting ranges, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think you hit it on the head. The, uh, the members of Congress who helped do this refocus, their, their idea was, hey, look, more money is going to this fund from handguns and from ARs, for example, than from grandpa's trusty hunting rifle. And so they want to make sure that people who pay into this get to see some value for it. And so shooting ranges, obviously, shooting ranges are something that are greatly valued by all every different type of gun owner. And uh, so they begun to put more into it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how this 90-10 thing uh, has benefited so many people. The one thing we also should note is that it was the firearms industry who asked for this tax back in 1937. And the industry is still very proud to support it, right? And it also corresponds with a fishing program called Fish Restoration, uh, also named after a couple of congressmen, Dingle Johnson, that does the same type of thing on, you know, fishing rods and fishing tackle and that sort of thing. And that's what finances a lot of our boat ramps and fishing access and that sort of thing. So believe it or not, it's the one federal program that you could name that actually worked. Well, yeah, because uh, they're taking money, but it's kind of we're doing it voluntarily, putting the money into a pool, and it's getting distributed back to the states. So we're, again, paying our own way. It's not like a normal tax where it goes into a pot and who knows how it's going to be spent. This is really specific. It's taxing a specific group of people for really specific reasons, and those dollars are coming right back to the people being taxed. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great program. And the issue really is about access to good ranges. You know, here in Ohio, there's a lot of talk about giving access to the Internet, making sure that people in rural areas and in poorer areas have Internet access because that's a, such an important thing today. Well, I mean, range access is important, too. So, Rob, for example, you know, I'm in central Ohio. This is a pretty populated area. You would think that there would be a good public shooting range. It actually takes me about 45 minutes to get the, to the nearest range. What about you? Is that uh, Dillon is the closest to you? Yeah, Dillon's probably the closest. I, I could beat a Dillon range in about a half hour. And let's be clear, you know, the one that's close to you that you're referring to, Delaware, is state-of-the-art, a fantastic range that anybody would would just be impressed by. Dillon's more like most of the other ranges in the state. They're nice, but they haven't been updated in a long time to match the standards that we've seen with these newer ranges that have been built with the money that we're talking about now. So Delaware and then another one in southwest Ohio. Uh, and I think they're about to complete a third one, Tranquility. These are really, really state-of-the-art ranges that are built more for today's gun owner. Yeah, and, but my point, though, is that you know I'm in a suburb it takes me about 45 minutes to get to Delaware. If someone is in Columbus proper, it could easily take them an hour or more. That's right. still quite a ways to travel if you're looking for a public shooting range. 
And, you know, I'm not laying blame on the Division of Wildlife. You know, we have the ranges we have, and they're doing a great job. There just isn't enough ranges, basically. And one of the big issues is that you can have backyard ranges in a lot of townships, and I'm fully in support of that. The problem is, is that you have all of these ranges. They're not really supervised. Some of them are not safe. We got one call uh, about a guy who had some railroad ties just stacked up in his backyard. He was teaching concealed carry classes, and they were shooting toward this tiny little backstop, and it was aimed right across a river, and people were, you know, boating. And his attitude was, well, you know, you can just— you can just wait for us to stop shooting before you cross our path. Well, okay, but you know, all it takes is one accident, Rob, and it screws it up for everybody. So access to ranges is a really, really big deal. It sure is. It sure is. And so that's why this 90-10 formula, this new prioritization, I say new, I think we're about three years into it now. It's a big deal and more needs to be done. This is a great first step. But more needs to be done. Columbus is the largest city in the entire state. So we don't have enough ranges here. And that's the case with all the other big cities, too. We need more. Well, and that's a good segue into this new bill called the Range Access Act. This is in the U.S. House of Representatives right now. And it requires a public shooting range on every national forest and in every district managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Rob, this is a great idea. I mean, basically says, we're not just going to provide money for the ranges, but you have to have ranges in certain locations. That's right. It's a really great idea. Now, you know, a lot of folks are not familiar with the Bureau of Land Management because BLM land is largely out west. But we are familiar with Forest Service land. We have an enormous uh, national forest here in Ohio, the Wayne National Forest. And so this is to me, this is another piece of the puzzle, Dean, right? So the first piece was this 90-10 taxing, uh, Pittman-Robertson tax usage issue that we were just talking about. Now they come back along with this one, and they're going to say, hey, look, if you have Forest Service land or BLM land, they have to put a range on it. That's a great idea. I think over time, you could build three or four or five initiatives to greatly you know, expand the number of ranges available to people. And this bill is just the latest step. And as you say, it's a great idea. And it's not only about just access, you know, having it nearby, having appropriate capacity, it's cost too. I'm always pointing out to people, you know, go online and look up, if you're not regularly going to a shooting range, look up the cost. I mean, it can easily cost 20, 25 bucks to visit a, an indoor private range, you know, run by a business just one time. And here in Ohio, you can get a range pass for, I think it is $24, and that's all year. And you can go as right. much as you want, as many times as you want. There are no limits, 24 bucks. So for the cost of one visit to a private shooting range, you can go all year to a public range in Ohio. I'm sure that it's very similar in other states. That's a big difference given the cost of the firearms and the ammo and gas now and, and everything else. So more ranges should be a really uh, big priority. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot this. This bill we're talking about, the, the Range Access Act, it actually stipulates that these ranges must be 
free to utilize. So in Ohio's annual shooting range permit, $24, that is ridiculously cheap. That's a great deal. These new federal ranges that are going to be built as a result of this bill, if it makes its way and you know gets signed, they'd be free. It's a heck of a deal. Now, would that fall under federal jurisdiction then? Yes, it would be a public range administered by the U.S. Forest Service. So I guess there are some pluses and minuses with that. You know, you get more ranges, but then depending on what the administration is doing, you, you might have a downside to it as well. You might. You know, anytime the federal government monkeys around with something, there's a chance it goes sideways. You know, I guess I would say this. They're, they're not talking about taking anything away from us. They're, they're talking about adding a range to an existing piece of land. So if you've been down to Wayne National, uh, you know, you can be to Wayne National Forest in about an hour, hour and 15 minutes from Columbus. They stick a range in there and they're going to use federal employees to take care of it. So will that come with strings attached and different firearms you can and can't use? I guess that'll remain to be seen. But overall, additional shooting range access, free of charge. Seems like a good deal. So let's talk about this lead ban. And there's a particular lawsuit here. I, I don't know that I'm particularly interested in this lawsuit, but, you know, these lead bans. And again, you know, a lot of our, what I would call the gun guys, don't pay attention to some of this stuff because it tends to affect hunters and sportsmen more than it does just, uh, you know, regular people carrying uh, concealed handguns and so on. But this is all about a uh, ban on traditional lead ammunition and fishing tackle without any real scientific evidence that it causes harm to species. And and the whole point of this is not really, I mean, let's face it, about, you know, lead or whether it's causing any harm. It's really about raising the cost of ammunition, right? So this particular this article that I'm looking at here, the Center for Biological Diversity versus the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can you kind of summarize what this is really all about and what the whole push to ban lead ammunition is about? Sure, absolutely. So the Center for Biological Diversity, that's where we should start. So that is the most powerful environmental and mostly animal rights philosophy group uh, in America on the litigation front. They specialize in lawsuits against the federal government and a lot of them against the Fish and Wildlife Service. What is awful about CBD is that when they file these lawsuits, they often end with the federal government paying all of their legal fees, which just incentivizes them to file yet another lawsuit. And they call that the sue-and-settle philosophy or sue-and-settle scheme. And that's what's happening here. So the Fish and Wildlife Service has been sued by CBD the expectation is that when the lawsuit's over, the federal government will then pay CBD for the lawsuit, which, of course, will make them want to do it again. So that's the first part of this story that really ought to just set your hair on fire, or in my case, set something up. Yeah, it's it's, so it's too, late, too late for that, Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, not, there's not much to burn. Nothing left. However, as far as what the lawsuit deals with, CBD wants the Fish and Wildlife Service to ban lead on its most recent national wildlife refuges that they've opened for hunting. There's only 20 of them. So the average person might say, oh, that's not that big a deal. Well, maybe it wouldn't have been a terribly big deal until Joe Biden got involved 
But the White House has entered into settlement talks with CBD, and they've they've already committed that any new refuges open for hunting will not allow lead, and they've committed that they are going to examine phasing out the use of lead ammunition and lead tackle over time. We're talking like a hundred million acres of hunting and fishing properties currently open to lead that are on the chopping block now and then enormous precedent for what can happen in the future. Now, what's the argument that lead causes damage to species, that it poisons them and they, they can't have offspring or what's the argument? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it is a scientific fact that lead's bad for just about anything that ingests it, right? Whether it's you and me or it's a critter, lead's bad, lead poisons them. It used to be that wildlife management would dictate that you'd have to be able to track a decline in a species, right? So it's not whether you find one bird that's dead from lead poisoning, but whether or not there's enough birds that this is impacted to cause a population decline, right? And the same would be true with fish, and the same would be true with waterfowl and the whole nine yards. But what the Biden administration has done, again, this is new stuff, precedent setting, is they're arguing now we don't have to wait for there to be a decline, all we have to do is show that lead does have an impact on wildlife, and we can envision how much more wildlife there would be without the presence of lead. So when you hear that, it really ought to get your ears open, because what they're really saying is, we don't have to show a population decline, we can begin to ban lead now. And what's the alternative? I mean, what if you're not going to use lead in ammunition, what else are you going to use? Yeah, well. And that's the real question, right? So depending on what usage you're talking about, there are alternatives. They're universally more expensive than lead, right? So, you know, you can get copper jacketed ammunition for rifles. You can get a tungsten matrix and bismuth shotgun ammunition. Uh, All that stuff is much higher priced uh, than your common traditional ammunition. And there's not a great supply of that type of stuff on the market. So if you're uh, if you got your conspiracy hat on and you don't have to have a whole lot of foil on your head for this one, if they make ammunition much more expensive and it's harder to get a hold of than it already is, they're talking about just make sure there's less hunters and ultimately probably less shooters too. And that's really the point, right? I mean, this is not yeah. really. Since they, I mean, do, do they have any studies at all that really are showing that it's truly affecting population, or is this just? an excuse for this sue and settle tactic so that they can reduce hunting in the United States. I think they can show that lead does impact wildlife. I mean, as I said, that's a fact. What, what I think they cannot show is that it has a detrimental impact on the population, right? So everything we do has a balance. For example, putting a road in guarantees that wildlife is going to be killed. Right, that's a guarantee. If you put a road in, you're going to have roadkill. When they put these windmills in, which are the big fashionable thing now, it guarantees that birds are going to get chopped up flying through those windmill blades. It happens every day. So there's always an impact to what we do. What's different now is they used to have to argue it was causing a population decline. Now they're arguing there could be more wildlife if we didn't have lead. 
So it's not about a decline anymore. And that's a real slippery slope that could have impactful restrictions in the future on hunting, uh, on fishing, and even on target shooting. Well, Rob, it just sounds like a scam because these activists are working hand in hand with agents within the government. They're getting together, sort of collaborating on these lawsuits. They're trying to get around legislation that they can't get passed otherwise. And then money from the government, from our tax dollars, are going into their pockets. I mean, that yeah. that's sort of the definition of a government scam. It is. I mean, the bottom line is the U.S. government under President Joe Biden is in cahoots. That's a technical term, cahoots. It's in cahoots. I mean, I think that's also a strip club, isn't it? Isn't there like a chain of strip clubs called cahoots? I wouldn't know anything about that. I thought you would know all about that, Rob. No, I don't. I wouldn't know anything about that. You wouldn't admit to it on a podcast, at least. (laughs) Uh, But CBD is now working in tandem with the federal government on these lawsuits. And right now it's only about National Wildlife Refuge land. But you have to ask yourself this question. If the federal government decides lead is so bad that it can't be on National Wildlife Refuge land, then what about Forest Service land? What about Bureau of Land Management land? What about land that the feds finance through the state of Ohio? And last, of course, what about shooting ranges? So I don't think you have to leap very far to understand how this is a big deal and something that should be fought. So let's move to this other story that I want to talk about, and this was about a a lawsuit brought by Mexico against U.S. gun manufacturers. And a judge, thankfully, just threw this out on September 30th of this year, 2022. It was a Boston judge, and he dismissed the lawsuit and uh, basically just said that, hey, look, the drug cartels and uh, elements in Mexico— there's, there's certainly a lot of violence there, but it's not these firearm manufacturers that are the cause of it. Now, the, the companies that they were targeting were Barrett, Beretta, Century Arms, Colt, Glock, Ruger, and Smith & Wesson, some pretty, pretty major firearm companies. Thankfully, they had a good district judge, and he wrote that, you know, you, you just can't do this, and the Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act prohibits it. So it was thrown out. Now, I'm not sure that that's really the end of it, but this lawsuit, and then, by the way, it was Brady Center lawyers who were really behind this and some states who were behind it. This was never about violence in Mexico. I don't even think it was Mexico's idea. Uh, This was about American gun control activists trying to stick it to the firearms industry. So fortunately, fortunately it was thrown out, Rob. But, uh, you know, this was just another tactic to attack manufacturers and the business of firearms. Right, right. You know, we're really fortunate to have gotten a good judge on this case. And, you know, as you and I talked about this, I read the quotes that you put on the BFA website from the judge. Man, do we ever need more judges like this? The direct cause of the increases in crime he's talking about are, of course, the decisions of individual actors. Isn't that the most awesome start to a decision? So, bottom line, This judge says people are responsible for their own actions. Who knew that you actually had a judge that was, had that much common sense. And the arguments that they were using guns.com cites one example. I had a a carry gun 
from Smith & Wesson that was an M&P. That stands for military and police. It was just one line of their firearms. They contended that this means you want to attract people who want to use these products to battle against the military and police so that the ads were signaling that, that you were going to attack military and police with these firearms. That, that is such a ridiculous argument that, I, that I'm surprised that, you know, adults would actually make an argument like that in public. You would think that they would be laughed at. But that's the, the level that they're working on to try to get these lawsuits passed. And the whole point is that you have this law, the Protection and Lawful Commerce of Arms Act, and they believe that there's a loophole. And the loophole involves advertising. So this is the route they're going down now, Rob, trying to look at ads run by manufacturers. They're attacking the ads and saying that they are incentivizing criminals and bad actors to misuse these products. Yeah, that's it. As you say, what a crazy philosophy. You can't fix stupid. I will say this again. I, I just have to go back to more quotes from this judge. We ought to run this guy for higher office. He says, the rise of Mexican criminal organizations has been fueled by the unrelenting demand of Americans for illegal drugs, and those same organizations now play an increasing role in smuggling of illegal migrants across the border. So the judge identifies something crazy. Who's committing the crimes? Criminals, right? And and so to have a judge basically put in a decision, the things we've been saying for years, is just really gratifying, and hopefully, you know, I imagine the gun control world is going to try to appeal this case. It's going to go to an appellate court. Hopefully, we find some more common sense judges that are ready to just stick a fork in this kind of argument that was made by the Brady people. Well, and that's really been a problem for several years now is this conflating of ordinary gun owners or the manufacturing of firearms, you know, the industry of firearms conflating that with criminal activity. And you see this again and again. We hear this in testimony down at the Statehouse, Rob, where we talk about law-abiding gun owners as being different from the criminal element who are committing most of the crimes. And the gun control folks just won't admit that. You know, we're all in the same bucket. It's all the same thing. If you own a firearm, you're just a criminal on deck. You're just a trigger pull away from committing a crime. So, you know, they, they don't want to look directly at criminal action or criminals as a distinct group of people, even though studies, in fact, there was a study done by Columbus that showed that uh, about half of the of the uh, homicides in the city were directly tied to gangs and specific individuals. They could identify who those individuals were in the city who were committing the crimes. And it wasn't just ordinary gun owners. It was established criminals. But, you know, the gun control folks want to conflate all of that because that's the way they can tie their policies to the confiscation or the regulation of firearms, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you know, it's so crazy that they think the solution to the crime wave that's sweeping this country and our state, frankly, that'll be solved if they take the guns away from the law abiding. But what we really see out in the streets is they don't arrest the criminals. And when they do, they get kicked loose fast on, you know, on no bail or low bail. And then they act like they're so surprised when these people go out and actually commit more crimes. But every time we hear that, the solution, of course, let's take guns away from those who have purchased them 
just because they want to defend themselves. That's like if you have a street where you have a speeding problem, where some people are just driving too fast and are putting people in danger, and there's a law passed that affects only the people who are obeying the speed limit. Yeah, that's right. right. I mean, I, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, and we don't do that with anything else. We're always holding specific individuals accountable for specific crimes. But when you get to gun control, that's not what it's about. It's never about the crime. It's never about personal responsibility. It's always just about the guns. Yeah, yeah, and that's how it really reveals their agenda. I mean, the folks behind this lawsuit and the folks like with Bloomberg and that, they just want to disarm us. That they have this utopian idea that if all the guns are taken away from the law abiding, that things are going to get better. But I would note this. All the people who are behind that movement, they all tend to have bodyguards, and the rest of us don't have that privilege. Yeah, a lot of them do, for, yeah. for sure. But, uh, well, I mean, again, this is, this is just part, I think, of a larger discussion, and we're not going to get into this here, but this whole elitist attitude that, you know, that, that uh, something is good for me, but not for thee. So you'll have uh, people who are rich, you'll have celebrities, they'll have armed guards, and of course they do, because that makes perfect sense. But when you're just an ordinary schmo, you don't have the right to defend yourself because you're not trustworthy. Right. The, the government needs to regulate you. I mean, never mind the point that they can't regulate hardly anything, but they're an experts in how to solve crime, except we haven't seen one scintilla of evidence that they actually are any good at solving crime. So they would leave you defenseless in your home, knowing that they're letting criminals out without bail. They're not making arrest of violent criminals now. We're really in a sad situation right now, and this this lawsuit was a joke. Well, I can say this. There is pushback against this whole defund the police thing. I knew that when that started happening, and that was back in 2020, and there were protests going on, and a lot of cities were saying, you know, let's defund the police. I, I knew right then that there was going to be blowback on this because if anyone actually carried through with those policies— you were going to see crime go up. I mean, we all knew that. Every sane person in the country <laughs> could see what was going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happening, not just in those cities, but everywhere else. And now you have people really trying to backtrack on those policies, and they're trying to blame everybody else. And, of course, right. we've got Nan Whaley running for governor, and uh, she's mayor of Dayton, and she's, you know, Dayton— has been named as one of the most dangerous cities, not a, not a large city, but but proportionally one of the da most dangerous cities in the country. And she's huge on gun control, Rob. Yep. You know, she she doesn't want to take personal responsibility or to point her finger at the actual criminals who are uh, committing the crimes. She just wants to take guns away from everyone else because somehow that's going to make us all better people. I'm really glad you made that transition because that'll give us a chance to do something that we should do every week until election day. And that's to remind people that Nan Whaley is an awful, awful candidate for governor. If you're a gun owner, a terrible choice. Well, I mean, we, we, uh, recently, um, issued an article. Well, I wrote the article, uh, it's on our website and I was just, uh, I, I just gave a straight up factual account of what Governor DeWine has done and what Nan Whaley has said that she wants to do. Now, I know people have their own personal opinions about people, and there are a lot of other issues other than guns, 
you know, regarding the governor and and uh, and Nan Whaley, and you can certainly factor those things in. But I put a really, I think, objective uh, comparison of these two individuals running for governor. And the fact is, I looked at some of the third party uh, or, or some of the independent uh, characters who are running, and Rob, they're, they're a joke. I mean, really, I, I don't mean to be rude, but there, there is no other viable candidate, not not even close. So it's going to be one or the other, and you really have to make that decision. And this is really what elections are all about. I really wish people would take a more practical approach to elections. And I know that it's terrible when you think that you're voting for the lesser of two evils, or you got to vote for someone maybe you don't personally like. But you know the fact is that it's either going to be DeWine or it's going to be Whaley. One of those two is going to be the governor, period. And right. so you've got to make a decision. And we've uh, given DeWine his due. He's signed nine bills that have benefited gun owners in Ohio. That's a fact. That's on record. So you know, regardless of what you think about what happened during the pandemic or anything else, that's a fact. So if it's uh, about guns. Uh, and, and you're concerned about who's going to be governor, these are your choices. Nan Whaley is an absolute train wreck when it comes to gun rights. And she's just basically come out and said, I'm going to take them all away from you. I'm going to take your yes. rights away because, you know, that's just what she wants to do. Well, she's, she's, if, let's, let's, uh, let's define this a little bit more. Nan Whaley has said she wants to repeal preemption. Nan Whaley has said she wants to repeal stand your ground. And she has said that she wants to repeal constitutional carry. I, I mean, I don't know how you can paint this any more stark. You can say whatever you want about your disappointments with Governor DeWine on this or that. He signed constitutional carry. He signed stand your ground. He signed a bill to allow teachers to be armed to protect our kids. And he's running against someone who would stop or repeal all of those things. I, I just cannot imagine a more stark choice than Nan Whaley uh, versus Mike DeWine, and I just think it's just a no-brainer. Well, and we talked to uh, uh, you know Governor DeWine prior to his running. He made certain promises. He came through with all of those promises, not just to gun owners, but to sportsmen as well. He's done uh, some great things for sportsmen. You know, we took him at his word, and he came through. I believe Nan Whaley, too. I believe that she's telling the truth. She's telling us exactly what she's going to do. And if she were to get elected, she's going to do all of that. And, you know, when it comes to something like preemption, if preemption goes, Rob, in Ohio, all the progress, and I mean everything that we've done for 20 years, just goes away. I don't care what it is. Stand your ground, constitutional carry, arming teachers, whatever. Every locality, every political subdivision, that cities, villages, townships, counties, whatever, they could pass their own laws. won't matter what the state law is. If preemption goes, it all goes, right? That, that's like the plug in the bottom of the ship. You pull it out, it sinks. And, and so right. when that is, that is, that's the pillar upon which our rights are built. I don't know if you saw this, but if you want a window into the world under Nan Whaley, New Jersey has just announced legislation that they're fast-tracking that would create a list of sensitive places where you cannot carry a firearm. Now, why did they use the term sensitive places? Well, this most recent U.S. Supreme Court decision that negated 
New York's restrictive laws against carry said that there could be some places, some sensitive places where a firearm could be prevented. Court was talking about schools and government buildings and that kind of thing. New Jersey expanded on this. And basically, anywhere you would go, except for standing perhaps outside in your own front yard, you just wouldn't be allowed to carry a firearm. The list is expansive. Parks, theaters, churches, uh, just an enormous list of places you're not allowed to carry. I could not figure out how you could spend the day as someone who carries unless you just stayed home. And that is what she envisions for Ohio. That's what the world would look like under Governor Nan Whalen. And surprisingly, a lot of the states, you know, like Hawaii or some other places, they've they've looked at this Supreme Court decision, the Bruin decision, and they've actually shown a somewhat more cooperative attitude toward it than New York and New Jersey. Those two states are just determined, you know, they're not going to give up. We've talked about this. We knew that was going to happen. They're not going to go down without a fight. They're going to keep at it. And who knows what is going to happen in the end. Look, if you live in one of those two states and you're not happy with it, really the only way out of it is to elect different people or move. Move to another state. Come to Ohio. Go to Texas. Go to somewhere else. Go to Florida. Uh, Because those two states are going to constantly fight the Bruin decision and any other decision. They just don't like people having guns. Bottom line. That's a, yeah, that's right. That is, that is the bottom line. And, you know, you'd like to say, you know, elect new people or move. The fact is the politics in those states are so radically left-wing that you're either going to submit to the government when it comes to your Second Amendment rights or you're going to have to move. Well, all of that was a little off topic, but I'm glad we talked about <laughs> it anyway, Rob, yep. because that, that is important. And, you know, the election, uh, when this comes out, I think it's two weeks until the election. Uh, what is this? This is going to be like the 27th election this year, Rob, uh, in Ohio. <laughs> right. It seems like it's right. just been nothing but elections and the future. We might have more of this kind of thing because the redistricting thing is not going away. I don't even want to get into that now, but we're probably going to be talking about that in the, the next year or two because it, it just has not resolved itself. But we'll we'll save that for other podcasts. Well, good. I'm glad we could talk about some of these things. Thanks for being on the podcast. And frankly, Rob, I just wanted to thank you for being part of the BFA team. You know, you've been a great addition to our efforts here over the last couple of years. And I think you've made a big difference in our being able to pass constitutional carry working on this armed teacher bill, and we still have an emergency bill that we're trying to pass. The uh, The time's running out, but I've, I've got my fingers crossed that we're going to get our third priority passed, perhaps, this year. If not, we'll, we'll get back to it next year. So just thanks, Rob, for being on the team. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure. The BFA's got a great team, and I'm glad to be working with you all. And that emergency powers bill still on the burner. And we're going to play the game until the whistle sounds. And and I still have hopes. I think we can get it done. So, Rob, thanks again. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. 
That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.